proudly student and listener-supported community radio. CIUT 89.5 FM, celebrating 35 years as the sound of your city. The views and opinions expressed on the following program are those of the producers and or the persons appearing on the program and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of CIUT FM. Well, welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. We love you out there in listener land and we love to hear from you. So please send your comments, questions, concerns and show ideas directly. I'm very easy to find. I'm all over social media. Uh, probably the best way to get me is just DM me at Sherry DeNovo, C-H-E-R-I-D-I-N-O-V-O on Twitter and I will be sure to respond. Uh, today we're in Women's History Month, and we're not that far from, you know, Women's International Women's Day. So I want to keep up that spirit on the show. Uh, last week, as uh, you know, we had Susan Gapka and Susan Morrison, and we were talking about women's issues and the fact that it's 10 years since trans rights have become part of the Human Rights Code in this province. Today, we're taking a different tact. We're looking at women in faith. And, and so honored to have uh, two incredible women who are in faith and faith leaders on the show. First, we've got Cantor Wunsch. She is from Shirla Benu, which is a wonderful, inclusive synagogue, if you don't know of them, uh, that's been in existence for many, many, many years. And she is their spiritual leader. And second half of the show, we're speaking to um, a woman who's been on the show before, Farine Khan, who is the leader of the Women's Mosque, the first women's mosque in Canada. Um, so to start, let's talk to Cantor Lynch. Cantor, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show. Hi, thanks so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So let's just jump right into it. Tell us a little bit about your journey, just even to be ordained as a rabbi. I mean, that that is still an accomplishment. And it's one, I know that in all faiths, women are still a minority. So talk about that. Yeah, so so first of all, not to you know jump into correcting you right off the bat, but I'm an ordained cantor. And I know many people aren't gonna necessarily know the difference. Um, there, there are several differences, but I'll, I'll kind of summarize it. Um, cantors and rabbis in more progressive movements of Judaism, I'm not gonna speak for, for more traditional uh, movements, but we have very, very similar paths. Cantors focus more on the music of the synagogue um, and the prayers and the liturgy, but we are fully ordained members of clergy, fully licensed to perform uh, life cycle events, weddings, funerals, all of that, and we teach and visit people in hospital. We just have a, a, a more musical focus than the rabbis do. So some congregations only have a rabbi, some congregations only have a cantor, and some congregations are lucky enough to have both. So I went the music route because I was a kid that grew up in a, in a type of family where you have to take piano lessons to be a part of the family. I'm sure you know some families like that. But music was always really important to me. And I went to a Jewish summer camp that I loved. And I liked synagogue and I liked Hebrew school, but I really fell in love at Jewish summer camp, um, which is a, is a pretty common trend for many of my colleagues. And so growing up, um, I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession. I actually went into child and youth work before going to seminary, and I worked with, um, with children and families in the school board and in some group homes. And while it was very fulfilling work, it wasn't 
everything for me. I, I missed working um, within the Jewish community and I missed the music part of it. So with some encouragement from, uh, from a teacher of mine who was also a cantor, Cantor Anna Trebashnik, um, I uh, applied for the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion, School of Sacred Music, um, and I don't know how, but I was accepted. And in 2006, I began seminary and it's a five-year master's program, one year in Jerusalem, and then four years in New York City. Uh, very intense, lots of studying, lots of uh, practicing, um, lots of writing. <laughs> Just, it's a very, very intense, but incredibly gratifying five years, and then we're ordained and unleashed on the world. Um, I went to Chicago first for a couple years, and then I went to London, England for a couple years, and then it was time to come home to Toronto. And I've been back for about seven years now, um, working in various congregations, and about a year ago I was hired by Shirley Benu, Congregation Shirley Benu, um, which is Toronto's longest running LGBTQ plus inclusive synagogue. If you just tuned in, you just heard a little bit about um, our lovely guest, Cantor Wunsch, and she, as you just heard, is a spiritual leader at, at Shirley Benu. Um, yes. Uh, and thank you for, for explaining to us all the difference between rabbi and cantor. Uh, so, I mean, here you are, you're in leadership in a congregation, you're a woman. You know, what were some of the hurdles, if there were any hurdles for being a woman in leadership, in congregate life, in, in well, speak about your own, but just also, just generally in Judaism, um, I, I could go on for days talking about the hurdles for women in, in Christian circles, but let's hear, let's hear from you. What's it like to be a woman in leadership, spiritual leadership in Judaism these days? <sighs> Such a big question. So um, I was trained, I grew up and was trained in the reform movement, which is one of the progressive movements of Judaism. And I was lucky enough to grow up at a time when women were starting to become more prominent in leadership positions. So probably around the time that I was 10 or 11 years old, I started seeing women as rabbis and women as cantors starting to become more commonplace. So once we as a community got used to it and how bizarre that we had to get used to it, but we did. Um, once we got used to it as a community, it didn't seem like a hurdle for me. I wasn't part of the generation that had to break down those barriers that luckily for me was done by the generations before me. Um, so in fact, now or 10 years ago until now, um, at my seminary, um, the balance has shifted and there are more women being ordained than there are men. But what's interesting is that that has not yet necessarily translated into the congregational life. Um, even in the most progressive areas of Judaism, there is still that tension between the um, idea that people have, the picture in their mind when you say rabbi or cantor and the man with the beard shows up in your brain. Um, or communities that think, oh, well, we already have a female cantor, so we need a male rabbi, or some of that exists. So um, it's, it's almost as if the congregations, not all, of course, but haven't quite caught up with the reality. Um, 
even in terms of pay equity. And we know that this is across the board. And, and one of my roles, um, one of my volunteer roles with the American Conference of Cantors, which is my professional organization, is I'm the chair of the Women in the Cantor Task Force. And one of the things we look at is um, pay inequity. And there are women who have these massive roles in giant synagogues leading these huge congregations that are still not making as much as men who have um, been in the role for not as much time or smaller congregations and we're we're trying to sort of close that gap and it, it's it's starting but it, it's not there for me personally um i would say that some of the challenges of being a woman in congregational life has been more on the on the small scale microaggression, no one means anything bad by it, but it's their side of things. So um, COVID has, has gotten rid of a lot of this because we've been online, but when we were in person, comments about my clothes, comments about my hair, comments about my makeup or lack thereof because I'm not much of a makeup person, uh, comments about my weight. I'm a person whose weight fluctuates and people talk about it to me, or they'll talk about how much I'm eating to me. Um, things that maybe you'd mention to a man, but most likely wouldn't. Um, I've certainly, when I was single and dating, that was a big challenge in community life. Uh, people seemed to really want me to be partnered um, or married, and yet I couldn't talk about dating because that was considered inappropriate or salacious, whereas I have male colleagues where if they were single and their community wanted them to be partnered for some reason and they said, oh, I went on a date, it would be, oh, that's so wonderful, but if I went on a date, it somehow was sexual and inappropriate because I'm a woman. I, I don't really know, but I can I can guess, so I had a lot of challenges in, in that area. Um, and there's still, unfortunately, um, people who talk down to women in leadership positions. And um, it's a challenge for me to put up those boundaries and to, and to explain to people why it's not okay to refer to me as a girl or um, tell me how sexy I look when I lead services, which yes, used to happen all the time. Um, I think now that I'm a little older, it doesn't happen as much, but, um, or, or comments like, oh, I wish my cantor looked and sounded like you because I would have paid so much more attention when I was a kid. And it's, how do you respond to that? You can't say thank you. But if you get too harsh and say, you know, that's really inappropriate, that's when they start accusing you of being cold and unfriendly and rude. And I got a lot of that too. Um, so it's a balancing act that I haven't quite found the found the right balance of. Speaking here, uh, if you've just tuned in to the Radical Reverend show, and of course we're on podcast two after the show airs uh, on CIUT 89.5 FM. Thank you, CIUT, by the way, for being the last independent, not corporately sponsored uh, and not you know, really, truly publicly sponsored much radio station left in the GTA. And I think we've just celebrated some 30 years of existence. So. Way to go, CIUT. Um, speaking to Cantor Wunsch, and she is uh, the spiritual leader at Shirla Benyu. Um, 
longest standing, you know, LGBTQ plus congregation, uh, Jewish congregation in Toronto and GTA. So, so that's who we're speaking to today uh, on this International Women's Month, um, Women's History Month, however you look at it. And uh, just when I was listening to you, I, I couldn't help but think that in the Christian world, there was this old ideal of the husband and wife. Uh, so that the husband would be, of course, the clergy and the wife, well, well, she would lead the United, she would lead the women's group, let's put it that way, in the congregation, independent of denominational status, and basically was seen as an unpaid other worker. Then when people kind of got wise to that, women especially, uh, then the ideal was a husband-wife team, a, both clergy, but the husband did the preaching mainly, and yes, the wife did the pastoral care and helped out and went to visit the sick. And you saw this kind of role model. And now we've kind of shifted. We've, so, so we're more progressive even than that now. But now we see if it's a woman in the pulpit and it's only one woman in the pulpit doing all of those jobs usually, uh, the big pulpits, let's just, you know, the bigger churches, the churches with more funds, the churches with more money, tend to, for some bizarre reason, have men <laughs> in those roles still. Um, so, so this is an ongoing thing. What do you think the problem is now? I mean, you know, women's rights have been, I mean, is, you know, we've had the vote for, you know, a hundred years. So like, what's, what's the problem? Why, why do we still come up against these things? Cantor Watch, go ahead. What's the, I mean, <laughs> what a big question. You're, what you just said just brought up a really quick uh, story. A few years ago, I was working in a very, very progressive community with a male rabbi, and we have different names, we're different ages, our titles are up like on the wall, and still, at least once a month, someone would come up and say, is that your husband or is that your wife to each of us? And his wife was sitting in the congregation. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, no, we're colleagues. We're not married. But uh, what, what's the problem? <sighs> Time? Um, patriarchy? I mean, these are, these are big things, right? And, and one would think that the passage of time has been enough, um, but I don't think that the, the overarching um, feelings of the patriarchy are going to go away with time. And I think one of the problems is we wanted it just to be over time. And we thought that with women just taking on these roles, um, things would just go away on their own, but they don't. And we've worked really hard and the generations before me have worked really hard. I know my mother says to me all the time, I can't believe you're still dealing with this stuff. I thought my generation fixed this for you. Um, I, I wish I knew. I wish I had the full answer of what the problem is because then we could, we could fix it, right? But I don't necessarily think that in progressive communities, there's a nefarious attempt to keep women down. I think it's subconscious. I think it's what we have grown up with, that you always tell a woman how beautiful she is, right? With, and, and why would you think that's a bad thing? Until you're on the other side of it and you're trying to do something that has nothing to do with how you look, it all of a sudden becomes a bad thing to be told that you look beautiful, right? So I think one of the challenges that we face is reteaching people 
how they're supposed to behave without... I mean, I was gonna say without preaching, although that's our job to preach, right? But, um, but in a way that's respect of, respectful of their intentions. And I think intentions do matter even though actions matter more. Um, oh, I wish I had a, a more complete answer for you, but I think we have to understand that people don't necessarily mean mean to be patriarchal and negative, but we have to find ways of, of teaching that are not um, mean. <laughs> like, you jerk, how dare you say this to me, but more like, I need you to understand why that's 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 not an appropriate way for us to interact um, and we need to support each other and unfortunately we're still dealing with some societal issues that pit women against each other there's not enough space for all of us and so we have to compete to to get those few spaces there are for women and it's just not true right what, what's the expression like uh, freedom isn't pie if you take a slice there's still plenty for everyone else. It doesn't take away from anybody else, but we don't feel that way because it's been so long of women having to, to fight for our seat at the table. Well, the, the table's infinitely large and there are infinite seats so we can stop fighting and help each other pull up a chair. It's Women's History Month here on the Radical Reverend Show, and that's what we're talking about, women in faith leadership uh, here with Cantor Wunsch and, uh, of course, yours truly. Um, as you were speaking, I was just thinking, um, there will be a lot of secular people listening to the show and who are not involved in faith communities. And I'm sure they're thinking, well, what are they doing in, a, in patriarchal faiths anyway in the first place? What did they expect? I mean, just look at the scripture. Uh, so I don't want to, you know, make this a, a deep dive theological scriptural show. That's not its place. But what do you do with, yes, we have, I mean, certainly in the queer world, there are the, what we call the texts of terror that you have to deal with. Certainly there are texts that are patriarchal in our scripture. What do you do with that? Do you think that's part of the problem? Yes and no. And, and, and I say that a little bit hesitantly because of course, originally, the texts are the problem. I think for more modern Jews specifically, although I, I, I might guess that it um, extends further, that the texts are not as definitively authoritative as they once were. So we have learned how to reinterpret texts in a way that are more inclusive, more open, more expansive. We've learned to look at Hebrew, which is a gendered language, and find the um, the non-gendered way of interpreting it. Um, we've learned to look at texts as historic in their historical context right when we're if we're reading from from torah from the bible and we're reading something about the subjugation of women we can put that in its place historically um so so that's sort of the the no of it i don't think that those are as relevant now um but there's always that fallback Right. If you do want to argue for um, inequality and for subjugation of women or queer people or 
anyone, you can default to the text and default to the um, traditional, and I use that word with quotes, interpretation of the text. So, so it's a challenge to find that balance and to, and to work with people to help them to understand that what they're reading is in itself commentary on the text. When we read a translation, the translation is the commentary that that translator was putting on the text. And often we're not equipped entirely to read the text either as it was or to understand it as it was intended because the language has changed so much since it was originally written in biblical Hebrew, which is not the same as modern Hebrew or Aramaic or whatever language we're looking at. We don't have the same lens. So it can be used as a weapon and it can be used as a teaching tool. Um, but wh why go into a patriarchal faith? Because it doesn't have to be a patriarchal faith. It can be a faith for everybody. It can be an open and inclusive and beautiful faith. And I think some of the women I know that have come into faith leadership in Judaism specifically have done so to try to change the narrative and some have done so because they see the narrative as already open and welcoming. Um, I think for myself, I'm somewhere in the middle, as you can hear, I, I, I try, I tend to try to see both sides. Um, I think that there are definitely problematic things in our text and we struggle with them and that's our job to struggle with them. And we can also say, you know what, that probably wasn't problematic and it's our interpretation that's made it problematic. Let's see if we can unravel that that ball of yarn. Um, I don't think that that religion has to be patriarchal. I think that was a patriarchal society's imprint on the religion as it once was. Uh, speaking here to Cantor Wunsch, and uh, it's been a delight. So let's let's look now at you're in you know in a synagogue looking at the world, and it's Women's History Month. What do we need as women? What do you see in your congregation, but beyond your congregation? You know what haven't we achieved? Yes, we've achieved a bunch. Got it. But what haven't we achieved? What what's what are the next steps? What do we need as women that we're not getting yet? I think we need, I think some of it's generational, to be honest. I think we, we need some of the generation that put some of those patriarchal boundaries in place to either be re-educated or, I hate to say it, retire. <laughs> um, you know, my, my seminary uh, just recently released a report. They did an internal investigation on sexual harassment and harassment in general in the seminary. And a report was released that named names of um, some pretty awful things that had been happening uh, in our school, uh, some of which I experienced and witnessed myself, some of which I didn't know about, but wasn't surprised to hear about. And it really, it really occurred to me and to many of my colleagues that this was a generational um, trauma that was passed down. And so one group was taught to be this way and so then they taught the next group to be this way and there was this idea that these, these men in these hugely uh, powerful positions could treat people however they wanted because that's how the people before them treated them and we need to we need to stop that we need to to put the blockade in and 
change the change the narrative entirely. And I know that my seminary is doing some work to try to um, to work on that. But I think a lot of that damage has already been done, and we now have leaders in out in the world that are still behaving in these. Um, pretty awful, awful ways towards not just their congregants, but to their female colleagues. Um, so I think we need um, more of these investigations. I think we need more uh, looking inward and assessing our own behaviors and comparing how we behave to the teachers who came before us and comparing how we behave to how we know we should behave. Um, and I say we because as a leader, I have to do the same uh, internal investigation, and I do, and sometimes I don't like what I see, and that's when I can work on it. But I do know that our institutions need to do a better job of ensuring that the people they're training have been um, cleared of some of these these problems, these patriarchal issues that, that do affect women and LGBTQ folk the most. We know, for example, um, that not only does that still continue, you know, one in, one in four women, uh, domestic violence is still a huge issue. And of course, that's spread in the bones, so to say, in our educational institutions, but also everywhere. So we see this happening. We just have a few minutes left, but I, I do want to say that, you know, as, as a product of second wave feminism, that I see all these changes, but I also now see a kind of backlash to, you know, it's kind of two steps forward, one step, I see a kind of push against that. Um, for example, you and I use pronouns, we do it for a reason. And there's a kind of uh, backlash against that. Uh, we just saw recently in the news a discussion, what is a woman addressed at someone running for, uh, you know, chief justice position. Uh, so, so where is this backlash? What, what do you think that's about? Um, speaking here to Cam Cantor Wunsch, uh, this wonderful leader of our, our local synagogue, Sheila Benyu. Go for it. I mean, it's fear, right? It has to be fear-based. The idea that um, for people with and I'm going to use a buzzword and I use it gently with privilege. I know that means different things to different people. Um, but for someone or for people who have led their lives being given privileges based upon their gender, their skin color, their identity, um, equality feels like oppression. Right. So to say we're not taking anything really away from you, but we're going to bring people up to meet your level all of a sudden you're not as powerful as you once were and so you feel like you're being oppressed. So the backlash is fear. The backlash is fear of, of losing um, a level of control, a level of power, a level of status. Um, I don't know how to combat it except just to keep going. Um, we, we have no choice. If we stop then this whole, this whole movement, whether it was the Me Too movement, the Time's Up movement, this will have been a blip and things will go back to how they were. And we can't, we can't go back to how they were. We know too much now, right? They, too much has been exposed. We know too much to go back to how they were. So we have to keep going and we have to keep understanding that the backlash is gonna happen. And there it is. And that's okay. It's not great, we don't love it, but we have to keep working against it. It's hard work. 
it's painful work. I mean, I, I gave a sermon a couple months ago about um, uh, sexual abuse in Jewish communities and how it's been swept under the rug and that I don't have a solution, but I know that if I don't talk about it, then I'm helping to hide it. And I think I made my congregation a little bit uncomfortable by giving that sermon, and yet the response I got was overwhelmingly positive that someone is brave enough to speak out. That doesn't mean it changes anything. But the more, more we are vocal, and the more people can understand the impact of some of this backlash, the more we can just continue to, you know, link arms and, and, and keep fighting for what we know to be equitable and right. Thank you so much, Cantor Wunsch, for being on the Radical Reverend Show. And uh, certainly, if you're interested in a synagogue, this is the one I'd recommend. There are a lot of good ones. I shouldn't say that. Uh, but anyway, Sheila Benyu is where she hangs out, hangs her hat. Uh, stay tuned. Next up is Farine Khan, the originator of the Women's Mosque, first in Canada. So don't go away. Stay tuned. CIUT 89.5 FM, the sound of your city. Stream us anytime at www.ciut.fm. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Radical Reverend Show. Your host, Sherry DeNovo. And of course, this show is about women in faith leadership. Uh, so important because there's not a lot of us. Um, and in particular, uh, truly just uh, I, revolutionaries maybe, you know, sounds too kind of violent or something to say, but she is a revolutionary <laughs> in her own way. And that is Farine Khan. Farine has been on the show before. She is the imama and the founder of the Women's Mosque, uh, the very first in Canada and, um, and leads it to this day. So Farine, welcome to the Radical Reverend Show again. Thank you so much for having me back, Sherry. It's always a pleasure to be here. And of course, this is uh, Women's History Month, and we just not too long ago celebrated uh, Women's uh, Day, uh, International Women's Day. Uh, we still are looking for a lot, right, Freem, <laughs> from this world uh, in terms of equality and just generally. I mean, I just got off with Cantor uh, Wunsch, and she was talking about, of course, you know, the childcare, which we don't yet have. We're the only province in Canada not to have $10 a day childcare, equal pay for equal work. We don't have those, uh, that either, and, and numerous other aspects of our existence still to be addressed. But women in faith is a particular area, and you really are a groundbreaker. So first of all, just tell us about the Women's Mosque. Why did you start it? What is it? And what's happening with it right now? Sure. So the Women's Mosque of Canada is really um, a safe, uh, inclusive space for women to come and to really find a connection to faith and to find healing. I think that's our primary purpose. We really hold a space of love and compassion. Um, a lot of the women that come forward are women, um, you know, and, and I would say most generally, unfortunately, a lot of women do experience uh, some form of violence or abuse. And so, you know, women are coming in uh, with a lot of um, shame that's been projected onto them. And so this is a space where they can really reconnect with, you know, our, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, most glorified the creator in a way that, you know, they, they don't feel judged. 
and uh, and this is sort of the the space to do it. So we operate at this time uh, primarily online, but are looking for a physical space. Hopefully, now that uh, things are are changing in the world, uh, and uh, the idea is that um, women, you know, are it's a it's a women led, women run space, um, and all of our congregants are women at this time. And that's unusual. I mean, you are the first in Canada. So what does it feel like to be the leader of a group like that? What are the challenges? What are the pluses? I would say that it's a, it's definitely a unique space to hold. I think, um, you know, it's, um, it's not new. Um, it's certainly there is a tradition of having women only mosques, um, you know, in other parts of the world, um, historically, um, for example, there's women only mosques in China, and they were there, um, you know, many, many years before what we've created now. So there's a precedence. There's also been, uh, even at the time of the prophet, uh, you know, peace and best be upon him, um, that there were precedents of women leading women congregations so it's not a new concept necessarily though it might seem that way in in you know modern times um so it's been it's been it's been um i would say yes challenging in the sense of trying to you know show that there's precedence for it um and uh and that it's not quote an innovation um with a negative connotation um into the faith so that's been um a challenge but uh i think overall it's been a really beautiful space for women to come into and one of the beautiful things we're seeing is that just how many women need a space like this, you know, Sherry, and, and how many people are coming forward, um, in particular the women who are looking for support and starting to really understand who they are as women and like what role, um, you know, we like how significant our role is, right, within society, within community, and within our own homes, um, and that women can be leaders and that we, you know, have the right to, uh, you know, religious and spiritual knowledge and, uh, and, and that we, you know, we can we can be on an equal equal playing field in that sense. Uh, one of the one of the aspects of patriarchy, of course, is that we internalize it, and that we women have been raised in patriarchal societies, and so we're used to seeing men lead. Uh, and sometimes it's tricky even for women to see a woman lead. Do you find that at all? I know that even though, for example, in my own tradition, the United Church has been ordaining women since 1936, it's still, you know, there are still some women would, that would prefer to see a man at the head of the church. Do you find that happens or that expresses itself in, in ways in your mosque? Uh, I would say so. I mean, certainly, I think the demographics that come to our mosque um, are more like, you know, feminist leading, I would say, women that are very women-centered, perhaps is the better word to use, um, that really want to, you know, see women in leadership. I think those who come into the space that are more um, conservative-minded, I guess, won't find the space to be uh, necessarily what they're looking for, right? It's, we're not a, quote, mainstream mosque in any, in any sense of the word. Uh, we do, you know, really focus on love and light and are not utilizing the same kind of fear-based narrative, right? So um, it's just very different. It's very different, but it's beautiful, you know? And uh, I think the right people do come forward. Uh, we cer certainly had our share of like judgment and negative, you know, comments from, from both women and men who don't see eye to eye with what we're doing. But I think that we still hold a really unique space and um, I have hope that, you know, as we continue to move into our fifth year next year, that uh, things will start to, to shift even more and our congregation will continue to grow. I can't believe it's been five years. It seems yeah. like it was yesterday that you just started it, Freen. And yeah. speaking here to Freen Khan, 
She is the Amana of, and founder of the Women's Mosque uh, in Toronto. And uh, let's talk about a little bit of the pushback too, because I know that to be a woman leader in a faith group uh, isn't easy. And have you, you, you spoke about it, you kind of spoke about it just generally about the, the judgment and the, and the pushback. Tell us more about that. What have you had to put up with? Um, I, well, I would say the, the the main thing is just that, you know, this idea of like the self-proclaiming of being an imama, right? Because that term is a new term um, that's been, you know, really, um, I guess, come from our mosque, really. Um, you know, most people don't use that language. So I think that's been the, the primary concern has been like, you know, uh, being a woman, taking that title. That's not a title that's normally given to a, to a woman. Um, and uh, the other thing is just that, you know, we... We, we operate like a mosque. So we have the same sort of services that we're providing, um, you know, be it counseling or, um, or uh, any kind of like social supports and such to women. It's just, it's just different, right? So people have, have had questions about that, um, you know, really um, mainly about just like, um, I guess the best way to explain it is just the having that, you know, the the knowledge, right? Like where is the knowledge base coming from? Or, you know, you know, uh, the 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 certifications, if you will, right? That generally aren't accessible. So how do you come off, you know, using that title? I guess, right? But I would say to you, Sherry, that like, you know, when it comes to men using the title of imam, any man who comes into the mosque, whether he has any knowledge or not would still use that title to address a crowd, right? And that's never a question that men are asked, you know, regardless of whether they have any actual knowledge or experience or not. There's just, there's an assumption that, okay, the man knows what he's talking about, but yet for a woman, it's it's so different, you know? And so that's been primarily what I would say the challenge has been. Um, and we've also had some conversations with community leaders at the beginning, especially saying like, okay, well, you know, why create your own space? Why can't you just, you know, use the space that we have, or perhaps we can try to start changing the spaces that we have and women will become more, you know, equal in that sense. I mean, I certainly think that over the last, you know, four years since we've kind of started, um, I'm grateful for your support in that journey, you know, that uh, we've started to see some inroads in the mainstream mosques in terms of support, you know, allowing women to, for example, sit on a board uh, or, you know, for a woman to come and speak potentially, but, you know, it's always, uh, but we're, we're not there yet, right? And uh, so the expectation that suddenly you don't have a women-only space, you just try to fix the problems in the men's spaces, you know, or the men-led spaces, um, is just not possible, right? Like we still need our own physical space. And so that was kind of the, uh, what was said in the beginning was like, we'll just shut down yours and we'll just fix ours. And it's like, well, that's not really a thing, right? So maybe you go fix your problem and then come and talk to me. But at this time, that's not an, that's not an option. Talk about the young women and particularly girls. It must be so eye-opening to see you at the front of the mosque saying prayers. Have you had reactions from, I suppose, both mothers and daughters? in what you're doing with the woman's boss? 
Yes. I mean, certainly I would say the younger generations, you know, something that continues to, to, to create hope in my mind and inspires me. A lot of the younger women are like seeking us out. Right. And I'm saying like, I really want, I'm so glad I found you. Like, this is exactly what we've been looking for. I just really, you know, a lot of these women have completely like stepped away from the faith because of the kind of, um, you know, rigid belief systems that were you know taught to them as young people and are now finally starting to reconnect right and often that's also because either because they're young and they want to come back or because they're becoming mothers and they want to be able to bring their children right so it's really nice to see that that the moms are also bringing their younger children um, and saying like look i'm so glad i can finally learn the faith in a non-judgmental space and feel safe about it and i want to you know really share that with my children so it's been a really really positive thing so far. Do do the children come into the main worship with their moms or do you have like a separate children's program? Uh, for now, they come in with their moms. That's, uh, yeah, perhaps that'll change in the future, but that's where we are for now. Well, that's lovely. I mean, that makes a certain degree of chaos, but it's lovely, right? <laughs> yes, that's right. Let's, let's talk about the shadow side. Let's talk about, you mentioned women who have suffered abuse and we all know we women who are in faith leadership, that uh, that's a major problem, that violence against women is still happening, can be physical, it can be emotional, but it's happening and it seems to be happening at the same rate that it always has. It, it's something that doesn't seem to be addressed no matter what good intentions there are out there. What do you think needs to happen to change that dynamic? Well, I think um, I, I think for, for like I'm, I'm going to speak to the Muslim tradition, um, you know, because that's who I uh, who I am. Um, but uh, you know, in terms of uh, the Muslim community, I think one of the biggest problems we have is that there's a misinterpretation of a particular verse in the Quran, uh, in ch in chapter four, which is chapter of the women, verse number forty, uh, thirty four, excuse me, four thirty four, which really um, in a lot of ways um, creates a lot of problems because it seems to interpret that it justifies violence against women and that's actually not correct but because this verse and the understanding has been passed on from generation to generation it continues to perpetuate violence against women um, you know, I just want to say that, you know, as we we said, violence against women cuts across all faiths and traditions, right? So it's not just specific to the Muslim community, but I find for us, that's where the pain point is. That's what we need to really address is to really say, no, that's not an accurate interpretation of the Quran. And there's actually a Quran that was translated by a woman. Um, my, you know, Allah bless her. She passed uh, in the last two years. So I didn't get a chance to meet her, but I spoke to her. Um, and she is an academic and scholar, um, Dr. Lala Bakhtiar, who wrote the sublime Quran. And one of her biggest, you know, gifts to humanity, I would say, and to our community is that she reinterpreted that verse to show that it's not about, you know, the word that's used is not to strike, but actually to step away right, or to detach yourself. And that's such a profound kind of learning, right, for our community. So that I think is one of the key things that continue to like, you know, cause so much violence in our community, that this idea that, you know, somehow men are more superior to the women or that, you know, men have a God-given right over the women and therefore women's salvation can only come through the men. This is a very problematic 
you know, concept. And so for us, a lot of the work we're doing is really trying to educate women about this idea that, you know, just like it says in the Quran, right, we've made mates from among you so that you may find tranquility and peace within each of us, right? So this is the kind of love that you want to have with a partner. It's not about violence or dominance or power over. Um, and so a lot of that, you know, education is so required. I think the other piece around it is just that there's a lot of honor-based violence that we continue to see as well. So similarly, you know, there's a lot of talk about how parents are, uh, you know, um, are sort of like uh, that, that, that in order for you to have a good relationship with God, that you have to have a good relationship with your parents. And yes, it's important to have a loving relationship with your parents. And yet, you know, God's very clear, you don't, um, allow oppression, right? To to you know, we don't promote oppression, right? So, if even within your family, if you're being forced to do things beyond, you know, outside of what you would normally do, or that take away your choice or your consent, and you know, create an oppressive environment, um, then you have you know you have the right to. To, to separate yourself and create strong boundaries. And so this is the, the other piece that we talk about around forced marriage in particular that continues to be a problem, right? Um, and, uh, and so, you know, this is the kind of honor-based violence that we continue to see as well. And so it's, again, uh, you know, really helping women understand, right, that that's not the tradition of the prophet. Women had choice when they were getting married. This is very clear in how we even saw the life of his daughter Fatima, right, and, and so many other women. So... It's, I think it all goes back to like education, right? And being able to help women really and men understand what our tradition is and how much misinterpretation and misunderstanding exists. Uh, speaking here, of, of course, uh, if you've just tuned in to Fareen Khan, you're listening to the Radical Reverend Show. She's the founder of the Women's Mosque in Canada. And we're talking about uh, with her and previously before with Cantor Wunsch, uh, the role of women leadership in faith and in this Women's History Month. Um, Fareen, you, you spoke about, you know, doing the work with Holy Scripture, right, which is the task of all of us. Uh, but... But certainly, you know, in the Christian tradition, in the Jewish tradition we talked about in the first half, there are what we call the texts of terror <laughs> that need reinterpretation, including for us the beginning of, you know, Genesis to talk about creation. Well, there are two versions in, in the Bible. And, you know, there's, there's one where God creates, you know, male and female in God's image. And then there's the next, which, you know, is the Adam and Eve one in the Garden of Eden, which is a little bit more problematic. Um, so we're all engaged in this, both uh, what's the correct translation, but also what's the correct understanding of these passages. And, uh, and so this must be a large part of your work is kind of reinterpreting for people who think they know what the Quran says, but maybe it's not the Quran that they heard or what happens in the Christian world sometimes is what we call proof texting. People will take a line out of the Bible and not look at the context at all. So that gives you a completely skewed version of what it's saying. So you had mentioned one text. Are there other texts that you find yourself uh, being confronted with and that you're busy in terms of giving what we hope, what we say is the correct interpretation of? 
Um, yeah, for sure. I mean, I think I think there's a lots of um, you know like passages in the Quran that you know um, if taken out of context can be very problematic, right? It's just like in other texts as well. Um, so a lot of the work is you know also just being able to give people context. I would say to women, you know, take the time to really reflect and do your research, right? A lot of the times we've always been told like don't don't think about it. Don't, you know, just, just do or read whatever passage because that's just how it's done. And I always encourage women to really think about, you know, what's being read. Um, I also think that, for example, like, you know, um, verses about divorce or verses about, um, you know, inheritance, stuff like this, right? We need to really think about those things um, in modern times and how they apply. Because I think there's often misinterpretations about some of these pieces um, or the expectation, like, for example, women should only get a third of her inheritance. But at that time, she was, you know, uh, she was dependent on somebody else. These days, that's not so much the case, right? So there's lots of conversations that we're having in general about some of the verses. I also think, though, it's important to put things into context. So sometimes when we talk about, you know, the stories of, of you know, of beautiful women from our tradition, like, for example, Mary, right, or Mariam, like we talk about her story and we talk about, you know, how she gave birth to Jesus and, you know, and, and just looking at the way in which it connects to our modern experience of like how much she must have been shamed, right, um, for carrying that baby, you know, and we don't take the time to think about that as a woman's experience, what, what must, must that have felt for her and, you know, how much trust and love in God must she have had to have, right? And how there was so much divine intervention or her even becoming the woman that she was and how she was cared for in that temple and how she received sustenance from heaven and so many things that, you know, was like this cultivation of love that God continued to give to her so that she could have that strength, right? When she needed to give birth to this child. So being able to put things like that into context, I think is really important too, because then women really start to see themselves, right? In the, in the text and really understand how much, how significant women's roles have been in, 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 you know, in not just our tradition, but in so many others. Uh, we're talking here on the Radical Reverend Show about, of course, Women's History Month. And we just came uh, not too long ago uh, from uh, the International Women's Day. And uh, of course, you know, speaking to Farin Khan, uh, founder of Women's Mosque, and then earlier in the show, Cantor uh, Wunsch uh, from Shirley Benyu Synagogue, uh, we're people of the book, all of us. So let's talk about the multi-faith aspect of this. And as you were speaking about Mary and Jesus, I was thinking there are probably a lot of people listening that don't even know there's Mary and Jesus in the Quran, right? Like they don't know that we share these stories. Mm -hmm. And this is true of all of our faiths uh, for, for people of the book. Let's talk about, though, in particular, Islamophobia, because there's been talk you know, politically about Islamophobia. And we've seen horrendous examples of Islamophobia happening in our midst. How does this then impact on, on women who, again, you know, we're, every woman has their own struggles as a woman, and then they have other struggles as a woman of faith. Um, where, where does that fit? Well, I think, um, you know, being a woman of faith, um, you know, uh, particularly a visible woman of faith requires a lot of courage at this time, um, because you are really, um, you know, identifying yourself, right, as being somebody who, um, you know, is embracing a particular faith, in, in this case, you know, being Islam and uh, being a Muslim. So it's certainly, you know, because of the, the Islamophobia we've continued to see post 9-11, um, it, it does take, uh, it can take a toll on women. 
in particular because you know we are consistently being targeted or or mistreated or or judged for who we are um, or misunderstood as being people who have no choice or no voice right or uh you know who don't have agency and such um but i think that um you know it does take a toll on women you know on on our on our psyches and our minds our mental health our our bodies in some cases if we're physically being attacked and such so um you know it's it's important for for us as as women to um continue to create that safe space for women to come and heal right i think that's ultimately what it is so you know not only are we uh you know, using the Women's Mosque as a platform for women to come and heal privately, but we're also using spaces that are external. Um, you know, I know um, last year and the year before we were we were meeting outside in the parks, right, um, and really taking the time to, after the London attacks, to go outside and to kind of reclaim our space and our safety to say, look, we're you know, we're just normal human beings who want to be able to gather and and, and we're not going to, um, you know. Um, allow the fear to prevent us from being all of who we're meant to be right and uh i know women have had struggles over the years and uh i include myself in this especially right after 9 11 right having to really contemplate does it make sense to continue to be a visible muslim or not if it's about your physical safety right and and not being at risk um but I think that, you know, some of us have made the choices to keep that going and others have not. And, and there's no judgment on that, right? It's whatever people feel comfortable with. The bottom line, though, is that we do need to stick together. And, uh, you know, and it's important to have beautiful allies to you, like yourself, Sharon, you know, to, to help us along the way so that we continue to open doors and, you know, and have those conversations, right? Have those tough conversations uh, and really address the the elephant in the room, if you will, right? Like we need to get to those 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 places where those conversations are happening, where we can start to really address some of the ignorance that continues to exist. Speaking to Fareen Khan here, founder of the Women's Mosque in Canada, and um, I'm thinking of the what I consider and many consider racist laws that are in our neighbor uh, Quebec, in terms of symbols of religious um, expression, like yours, and you're wearing hijab as a speak to you can't see that on radio, but you are. Uh, and you know what? Any feelings? Like what's happening in Quebec with with Muslim women there? And also, have you personally experienced any you know pushback just walking the streets of our city in Toronto? Um, well, I would say not uh, not recently. I mean, you know, there's always the ups and downs, right? In terms of um, kind of like the spikes, I think, uh, when it comes to Islamophobia, we'll see certain incidences or something will happen in the media and then things will start to, you know, uh, spiral again. So um, I personally am a survivor of gender-based uh, Islamophobia. Post 9-11, I was attacked. Um, and I've been very vocal about that experience because I've always wanted to explain that Islamophobia is very gendered and can be. And the experience of women is so different from that of men, right? So, um, so yes, for sure, you know, and, and I think that when it comes to um, Quebec, it's, it's a very, uh, it's very problematic that even during, you know, this time in the pandemic, there was such, you know, explicit messaging of you can't wear a niqab, but you can, uh, you know, but you can, but you have to wear a mask, right? Like, and what's the rationale for that, that, you know, you're not, uh, because the rationale has always been 
oh, well, if you can't see your face, we, you know, you must, it's unsafe for us not to see your face. Well, that's really changed in the last two years, right? I mean, everybody's covering their face. So how do you, how do you come off saying that, you know? And so I think the idea of any government mandating that women, you know, should, should anybody individually, man or woman, you know, um, is being dictated of what they can or cannot wear is a problem, right? Particularly as it relates to your religion and your faith. I mean, that's something that's so personal to you. Nobody should be uh, dictating, you know, how you express yourself when it comes to your faith at all. Speaking, uh, as I've said before, to Fareen Khan here, founder of Women's Mosque on the Radical Reverend Show. We just have a couple of minutes left, Fareen. And I, I, first of all, you need to tell people uh, um, how to get in touch with you if they want to mm-hmm. attend Women's Mosque. Uh, but also just, you know, what are your hopes for all women going forward? Yeah, so you can you can attend the mosque uh, by connecting through womensmosque.ca. That's the best way to get a hold of, of myself and others uh, on the team. So we look forward to, to seeing you either in person or, or online. Um, and what would I hope for all women? I think that, you know, I think I think it's time for for all women to be treated with love, honor, respect, and dignity. And I think that, you know, the days of like, mistreatment of women has to end you know it's just it's too much we we play such a significant role in society we you know we give birth to to children we you know we we um we're the nurturers we're the you know the caregivers we're the leaders we we play such important roles and we have in our traditions as well um and it's time for 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 both the men and the women to, to really understand and embrace that, that women are, are sacred. And it's very important for us to be treated as such. That's a great way to end the show. Women are sacred. So uh, just remember that whatever faith or no faith uh, you uphold. And please uh, always love to hear from you, questions, comments, uh, ideas for shows, and certainly celebrate Women's History Month, please. And, uh, and know that there's still a lot to do. Until next time on The Radical Reverend Show.